This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb F., Sam VR, Stephen, Julian, and Emmelyn. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Caleb F., who asks, Why would Jesus say, Truly, truly, I say to you? Caleb, Jesus uses this expression, truly, truly, I say to you, a total of 25 times in John's Gospel. In fact, it is only in John's Gospel where he doubles the word truly and says it like that, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, when you hear the words in the original Greek, their significance might become obvious. Here it is. Amen, amen, lego humen. Lego humane means, I say to you. But did you recognize the first part, amen, amen? That's literally, amen, amen, the word that we say to end a prayer. Amen means, it is so, or let it be so. When Jesus begins a sentence, amen, amen, it is so, it is so, he is telling us that what he's about to say is extremely important and extremely reliable. Of course, everything Jesus says is reliable, so when you hear him say truly, truly, you should really pay attention. And now Sam VR asks, what is your favorite parable? My favorite parable, Sam, comes in Matthew 20. It's called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. It's the one where a landowner hires more and more laborers throughout the course of the day to work in his vineyard. And then at the end of the day, when it's time to settle up, he pays everyone the same amount, whether they've been there from the beginning or just arrived. Now, the workers protest because this equal treatment seems unfair to them. The more you work, the more your reward, right? If I did 10 times the work, I should get 10 times the money for it. But the landowner says to the protesters, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. He can choose to be generous with his own possessions if he wants to be. The reason this parable is my favorite is that it reorients us on the all-important question of God's grace. If the Bible says God chooses to show mercy on us, people protest that this isn't fair. The implication is that God should give everyone the same chance, and whether or not they are saved should depend on what they do with it. But salvation isn't something we earn by working. It's a generous gift, and God can give it to whomever he wants. There's no injustice in this. The only thing we are owed is punishment for sin. Everything else is God's generosity and nothing else. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Stephen. Let's give Stephen a round of applause. Here's Stephen's question. Why can't God kill all the bad people? Believe it or not, Stephen, I get this question or some variation on it quite a bit. 
And until now, I've always put off answering it. This isn't as simple a question as it sounds, but it does reveal something about the way we think as human beings. The most important part of the question isn't actually spelled out in the question itself, it's only implied. Why would God do something like this? Why would we want him to? Well, the only explanation is that there is a problem, and God taking drastic action like this would be a way to solve that problem. So whenever people ask, why can't God just do whatever it is, uh, make the evil go away, or as in this case, kill the bad people, what we're asking is, uh, we want God to, number one, use his power, and number two, use it to solve this human problem, and number three, maybe most importantly, we want him to do it quickly. Why can't he just take action? That third part is probably the most important, because we get tired of waiting. We get tired of all the complexity. Why can't God make it fast and easy? Just kill the bad people and the problem is solved. Okay, so what's the problem? The implication is that the problem here is evil, right? The problem is bad things are happening. If you want to get rid of the bad things that are happening, then the obvious solution is to get rid of the bad people who do them. So we're going to break this down and see that there are some false assumptions that are behind this question. And then we'll consider how God actually does solve the problem. The first false assumption is this, that we can divide humanity into two types, the good people and the bad people. Usually the thinking goes something like this. Most of the evil in the world is the result of a few bad people, relatively speaking. Most people are basically good. And if it were up to them, the world would be a better place. But there are some exceptions, the bad people, and if we want to make the world better, then we have to get rid of them. That last part is the second bad assumption, that we get rid of our problems by getting rid of people. The cause of our troubles, we tell ourselves, is other people, which means that to end the trouble, we need to get rid of the people. Maybe the person causing your trouble is a parent. Maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's a political leader. Maybe it's a pastor. You tell yourself, if only there weren't people like that, I'd be happy. So let's get rid of those people. So, two interconnected ideas. Our problems are caused by bad people, and the solution to our problems is to get rid of the bad people. The question is, why doesn't God do this? We may not have the power to get rid of the bad people, but surely God does. If he wants to do away with evil, why not kill them all? Jesus doesn't tell us to kill our enemies. He tells us to love our enemies. That right there tells us something about the character of God. As a just judge, he administers punishment to sinners. But you should expect him to show a lot of patience and a lot of mercy, because that's how he deals with his enemies. Well, who are his enemies? Well, that brings us back to our first false assumption, the separation of humanity into two camps, the good people and the bad people. The Bible has a word to describe a good person, righteous. But it also tells us that because of sin, there are none who are righteous. No, not one. In other words, if God was going to solve the problem of evil by getting rid of the bad people, well, he'd have to get rid of you and me. In the garden, he told our first parents, Adam and Eve, that the penalty for sin would be death. But when he handed out judgments for that first sin in Genesis 3, instead of killing the bad people, he showed mercy. He let Adam and Eve live. 
Because of sin, their lives were hard. But instead of condemning them, he showed that one day he would deliver them from sin. So God's solution wasn't to kill the bad people. It was to save the bad people by making them good. The only way to do that was to send Jesus. Jesus was perfectly righteous, a good person, and yet for our sake, he was killed. His righteousness is given to us as a gift, and his sacrifice covers our sin. That's how God makes bad people like us, sinners, into good people like Jesus, righteous. Here's the thing. Instead of rejoicing in the way God does things, humans always want to take matters into their own hands and save themselves. That brings us back to the second false assumption, that you can solve your problems by getting rid of the bad people. That way of thinking is called moralism. When we divide the human race into good and bad, we always put ourselves on the side of the good. Then we judge the other people, the ones we think are bad, and say that by getting rid of them, we'll make the world good. The problem is the evil isn't outside of us and a few bad people. The corruption is inside of us. When we try to save ourselves, we actually make our situation worse, not better. As long as we tell ourselves that the evil in the world can be solved by voting the bad people out of office, or putting them in prisons, or by blowing them up and wiping them off the face of the earth, we will always be blind to the only way of really saving the world, which is the work that God has done for us on the cross. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first comes from Julian, who asks, Is the Easter bunny real? Who leaves the candy eggs around my house? As I've mentioned before, Julian, my all-time favorite candy is the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup egg. So I feel like I should tread carefully here. I don't want to say anything that will cut off the supply of eggs. So let me be diplomatic and put it this way. Both Easter and Christmas, the two biggest dates on the church calendar, have developed some pretty robust secular counter-narratives that sit side by side with the biblical story. At Christmas, you'll hear all about Santa, and at Easter, you'll hear all about the Easter Bunny. Now, there's nothing wrong with these stories being included, although historically speaking, both of them are fairly new. But it is a tragedy when these stories become the main focus of Christmas or Easter. In modern America, a lot of people think it's impolite and divisive to acknowledge the Christian origins of Christmas and Easter, strange as that sounds. And so the North Pole and the Bouncing Bunny serve as safe alternatives. You don't have to overreact by steaming up over these things. But at the same time, let's make sure that we keep our focus on what these celebrations are really about. Which means that whoever leaves that candy for you, be sure to say a prayer of thanksgiving before you eat it. And now Emmelyn asks, how do you start writing a story? Emmelyn, I always start at the beginning. I'm not being facetious. When I write anything, I let it simmer in my imagination for a while, letting the ideas develop over time. And eventually, I get to the point where I want to start writing things down. And for me, that usually starts with the opening words. There is a deeper question here, of course, which is, how do you start? In other words, how does the process even begin? 
Henry James, who's one of my favorite writers, talked about the first spark of a story idea. He called it the germ. The germ could be anything, a a piece of dialogue, uh, a plot, maybe just a mental image of a person or a place. But the more he contemplated it, the more it expanded in his mind. The words became sentences and the sentences became scenes. The people and the places became characters and settings. And that's how it's been for me, too. I'll get an idea stuck in my head and just keep thinking about it until other ideas start sticking to it and it gets bigger and bigger. Eventually, it gets so big and complicated that I just have to start writing it down. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking The Big Questions.